This is the John Oakley Show podcast. All right, let's get started. Topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville. Dial pound 3636. That's the number to bear in mind. Big weekend coming up. The big ball game. A lot of folks going to be scarfing back the pizza. Pizzaville. Dial pound 3636. Joining us. As per usual, Thursdays, David Will, Senior Vice President of Media Profile, a leading Toronto public relations agency. How you doing, David? I'm doing great. Great day for talk radio. Thank you for that. Got the bell. <laughs> Peter Sherman, broadcaster, businessman, former conservative MPP. How's the Shermanator? All of the above, and the Shermanator is fine. And looking forward to occupying your chair tomorrow. Oh, well, I'll be away. I'm going places. Uh, Andrew Clark, contributing writer for the Globe and Mail, award-winning journalist, screenwriter, and author. How's Andrew? Terrific. Fantastic. You took off your 49ers hat. What's oh, well, the... well, I would have, you know, over the headphones. I don't want to get it too dirty. Oh, well, I just thought, you know, if you're really one of these diehard fans, it's welded to your head. Uh, yeah, I sleep in it. <laughs> Which is understandable. I you mean, know. you finally, you made it back to the ball. Uh, it's been a long and and long and painful wait for the 49er fans, but yeah, I'm pretty psyched up. It's exciting. It is exciting. As a matter of fact, that's why Sherman's going to be here because I'm going. But nonetheless, uh, the other talk is you know in the lead up to it, you were saying you went last year. Yeah, I went to the the game last year. My brother's a, a Patriots fan, so he invited me, and I I had to wear like Patriots gear, and stuff like that. <laughs> not worth, not worth it. <laughs> not worth it. I was going to say how easily he turned. Oh right? man, I was sold. Didn't even wait. You yeah, can be so bought. I was a diehard uh, Patriots fan for the entire weekend. It was a blast. It was super good time. And you recovered in time. It took a little while. I got to tell you, we were in Atlanta, and Atlanta is a great, great city, and has fantastic nightlife. Really fun. <laughs> okay, he says in <laughs> subdued tones, like it's a cautionary tale here or a warning. What happens at Super Bowl stays at Super Bowl. All right. I think, I think that's the remember. message I got. Is yeah. that what it is? Yeah, okay. I'm taking notes here furiously. You know, in the lead up to it, of course, you've got all these different press conferences and media, uh, whatever, uh, confabs. So uh, Roger Goodell, who's the commissioner, was being asked about the possibility of a franchise for Toronto. And uh, I mean, it was kind of a couched uh, response that, you know, yes, Toronto's a great city, world-class and blah, blah, blah. But you need a world-class NFL-ready stadium. And the cost of fix to these now is about $1.52 billion. And so, David Wills, that would be money well spent to get an NFL franchise, wouldn't it? Nope. The you know I went to one of the games when the Bills were playing here, mm. and I know the venue wasn't great. It was at Sky Dome, uh, you know whatever it was called then, and it, you know it's not a great NFL environment. But the fans weren't into it. It wasn't sold out. Uh, you know I think I don't know whether we've got the market for it, but I don't know who's going to pony up the the one and a half or two billion. You know governments have a lot of priorities and are saying that things got to get cut here and there and everything else. I don't know how you would justify. Uh, putting that kind of money into a single-use stadium. All right. Well, hey, Sherman, uh, I'm not... I I don't think so, but go ahead. No, okay. So uh, government money, uh, that would be the deal-breaker, obviously. I can't see that being justified, because the last time around with the Sky Dome, it was $625 million, if memory serves. And then they ended up selling this to Rogers for 25 mil, uh, who did the negotiating there. Uh, but nonetheless, this price tag, there are only a few players that could meet that. MLS and E is maybe one that comes to mind. You know, they've got a lot of other sports under their umbrella. But would this be an NFL town? And if this were something also available, say in 2026, when the World Cup of Soccer comes to North America, you've got to have a major league venue. Uh, does it make sense that we maybe start to plan in that sense? 
This is a sports town. I'm not a sports guy, but uh, I'm aware of what goes on in my city. This is a sports town, or the Toronto Maple Leafs would not be alive today. It's it's kind of that simple. And if you uh, I, uh, had uh, Larry Tannenbaum on the phone, I, and and you were talking about uh, MLSE and looking at venues and whether or not that money would be there, I suspect that you might get a more positive response than you think. This this is one of those subjects, as you well know, John, that comes up every couple of years, maybe every five or ten years, and uh, there's always conversation about well you know it would not be sustained torontonians would not pay the kind of money that's uh that would be required to support a team where you're paying uh top drawer players many 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 millions of dollars uh and take that aside uh, if you put that in you'd kill the canadian football league it's never going to happen i would say not so i would say that they said the nba would never be a success look at that the nba when the jays are winning they got one of the highest attendance records in major league baseball so, Andrew Clark, the prospects of doing this, if somebody's willing to take a flyer, pony up that money, uh, they'd obviously assess the market and the situation. I think the fly in the ointment is Buffalo's just down the road, and uh, the NFL wouldn't want to kill that franchise, that storied franchise. Well, I think Buffalo is the Toronto uh, uh, franchise. It, it's by default. Uh, before you could watch every game all the time on the NFL big ticket, you were forced to watch Buffalo games. That's why I've always <laughs> resented the Buffalo Bills. I would have to like go to some obscure bar to try to find a 49er game. But, um, you know, I think that's the main thing. I don't think that they're going to do that to Buffalo. I think the other thing is that the NFL demands uh, cities make big concessions. That's why the 49ers are not not in San Francisco. They're in Santa Clara, which is about an hour drive away, because they wouldn't give the city of San Francisco what they wanted. So, you know, the other thing is I I think kids growing up, they play hockey, they play basketball, they play soccer, not so much football anymore. You know, when I was growing up, people played football, tackle football. Every school had one now because of worries about concussions and stuff. Not so much. So I think that's a problem. So probably what they should do is rather than two billion, maybe earmark four or five million to fly 49er fans to and from Toronto <laughs> games. You know, that might be a better way to, you know, satisfy the football fan here in Toronto. Better better use of tax dollars. Yeah. You know, in fact We'll build might... a monorail to Buffalo. <laughs> That's not bad. It's funny you say that, Wills, because you if you crunch the numbers, you're probably right. Uh you get more bang for your buck that way. But listen talk about cultural industries and money, because this came up in a report that re- was tabled yesterday uh, called Canada's Communications Future, Time to Act. I spoke to the uh, panel chair and lead author, Janet Yale, earlier today, and uh, one of the proposals is to impose taxes or some kind of a tithe, extract some kind of uh, money, concessions, whatever, from these streaming services. And I couldn't, for the life of me, uh, figure out how she... uh, I mean, as many answers as she gave me and varied answers, it never seemed satisfactorily that they can actually do this, you know, like somehow get that money out of these streaming services like Netflix, Disney Plus, Amazon Prime. David Wills, would you know how they would do it? I would think the easiest way is, you know, David Wills has money taken from his credit card every month to pay for his Netflix subscription. They have a Canadian revenue stream. Tax that. You know, like, I, like I'm paying for Netflix. I'm in Canada. She, she, she said that isn't on plan. Well, because I, you know, I, I just to show you, I'm paying attention. So I was listening yesterday, and I heard Ernie Eve say something which I thought was quite simple: is everybody has to pay their fair share. And I think that Canadians, they're, you know, figure out what do you charge in Canadians? What's the tax on that that would be fair? Other corporations that uh, you know that operate here, and you know, have them contribute in that way. I think if they're not paying anything. Uh, you know that does a disservice. It's unfair competition. All right. So the consumer is taxed then. Well, no, it's 
Well, they they would probably pass it on that way, but the you know they are making revenue from me now. That is revenue. My business has revenue. I pay my expenses and I pay tax on that. They should have to have a Canadian business if they're going to operate here, and it can be it can be taxed and and uh, looked at the exact same way, like every other business. Andrew, you'd probably have a mailbox in Buffalo, wouldn't you? Oh, at least two. Lewiston, actually. <laughs> you know, okay. it's a little nicer. It's down on the river. So you've done this before uh, <laughs> with DirecTV, I'm sure. So uh, does that make sense? I mean, that they're talking up amongst the uh, different recommendations, 97 in total, but uh, placing a tax on streaming services. Well, they could try, but I don't know that Netflix would, would go along. I mean, if they said, we're going we're gonna to do this to you, I could see Netflix saying, well, then we're out. I mean that's not going to please a lot of Canadian customers if Netflix says okay well we won't we won't uh, we won't uh, broadcast into Canada. Then. Well, how would they say they're out? I mean, if it's a streaming service and you get it on the interwebs, you're getting it over uh, the internet. Peter Sherman, can they close this loophole? I you know what I I read this story. I read it early this morning, and I thought to myself yet again after about fifty years associated with broadcasting and such, and I thought to myself, why do they keep trying to figure out ways to regulate anything to do with broadcasting or distribution on mass in Canada? We said years ago when the uh, argument was that the CRTC and its predecessor, the BBG, existed because radio frequencies were scarce. That one day they wouldn't be scarce, and anybody who wanted to have one could. And now we're in that day. And there happens to be a Crave, and there happens to be a Netflix, and there happens to be an Apple TV, and I could go on and on and on. Um, the taxation and the the, uh, con- the contribution to the Canadian reality is right there. We have a tremendous production industry. I just finished watching uh, the morning show, at least the first 10 episodes. That's season one that came o- across Apple TV. It was made in Montreal. And we have uh, dozens of shows that are, that are uh, created in Canada using Canadian talent, uh, using Canadian actors, using Canadian technicians and cinematographers and all the rest of it. We don't need this, and we don't need the CBC, and we don't need a damn committee to tell us how to run our broadcasting. David Wills, uh, he makes a compelling case, doesn't he? As long as the Canadian dollar is like reduced by 33 cents, uh, it's going to draw people up here to do productions. Well, and, and don't forget we have Canadian subsidies that are that are uh, supporting that industry. But you know, Peter when, would discontinue those as well. Yeah, no, he, he's they can all get off his lawn, and and he, you know he's <laughs> That's not right. And he's not completely wrong. And you too. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't go any. I've learned my lesson. You put the hose on me too many times. <laughs> the, but you know, when I travel and I log into my Netflix account, like when I was in Iceland, I was in Netflix Iceland. Like I wasn't in my Canadian thing. So they know where I am. Why don't we know where their money's coming from? Like it can't be that hard. You were in Iceland. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> not like not today. But no. the, well, there's an interesting thing here that you know you raise Iceland kind of tongue in cheek, but Netflix to use that example because everybody wants to use that example is in most countries, well, many countries, if not most countries around the world, and each of them gets their own little slice of Netflix that's tailored to their country. Some of the programs don't have distribution rights, for example, and there are, to my knowledge, not a heck of a lot of uh, efforts coming across in countries other than. Canada uh, to recoup some money and try to get Netflix to produce in, let's say, Iceland or Norway or one of those countries. It's just a service that's available that I get to pay for or not. And it's up to Netflix whether they want to produce or not in my country. And they do. 
But to that point, like, I watch a lot of Australian shows on Netflix. I watch, there's a great Iceland show of this detective. It seems this small town, like, there's a murder every week, you know what I'm thinking? Is we there, caught him in Reykjavik. Is, yeah. is, no, it's outside, it's not, Reykjavik's a big big city. It's, you know, a couple hundred thousand people. And I'm like, there's going to be nobody left at the end of this season. Cause wow. But it's it's actually a pretty good show. Mm. Uh, you know, it's subtitled. Mm. But it, it's, you know, I'm not seeing that, uh, I'm not seeing the Canadian part. Well, I mean, uh, Schitt's, uh, Schitt's Creek. Uh, was always a, a very solid, funny show. You just wanted to say that. Uh, and that's why Eugene Levy fought for that title, so to have people like me saying that. But uh, but when it got on Netflix, that's when Netflix knows how to find that audience. That's one of the things they're really great at, and they have that worldwide audience. So I think one of the real inequities in Canada in terms of entertainment is that Canadian writers and producers aren't free to cross the border into America and work, but it's Americans are free to go the other way. So what we should be working on is making it easier for Canadian writers and producers and directors to work in the United States. You know. Wow. All right. Well, cultural barriers uh, being put up, and Peter Sherman, you dismantle all such. By the way, this broadcast media fund—they're also proposing because they've given journalists six hundred million, as you know, uh, the Trudeau Liberals. They're saying to extend it to broadcast media around the horn quickly. Is that a good proposal, David Wills? I don't think so because I don't understand how the first six hundred million worked out. Like you know, it's I remember the announcement. And I remember it, us talking about it. It bought and paid certain journalists. Yeah, I, it's, but who? I, I don't know. I, I didn't see anything change. So oh, really? I, I'm, I'm going to say no. You're living in a real leftist bubble, aren't you? I could be. Okay, uh, Peter Sherman, broadcast they're, media fund. Oh, they're going to give some to chorus, and I'm going to have to become a lefty. I don't think so. <laughs> Well, wouldn't necessarily imply that, but no. Might... You know what, John? I, I know you you want to do this quickly, but uh, the CBC. It's if the CBC wants to be defunded. I mean, they're the guys who changed their national newscast in the evening to make it virtually unwatchable uh, at this point, and now they're changing it again with uh, with Rosemary leaving or at least being reassigned. Um, they they are looking at revenue that only is derived for the television part, and this committee is saying take that away as well. I say take it all away and take the government subsidy away and let the CBC exist the same way that uh, public broadcasting ex- uh, exists in the United States, both in the radio side, NPR, and television, PBS, uh, and they can do the uh, once-a-month begging thing the same as the Americans do. It works, and they produce good programs. Let's us try it, too. How about it, Andrew? Last word on this one to you. It basically, the begathon is that the model that we should adopt for, A, the CBC, defund them. Uh, they don't want, this is the recommendation from the panel here, by the way, no ads on all their platforms. So Peter's just willing to say, go full Monty. I, I don't think it will fly too high. Uh, and I, I think it, you know, they're, 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 they're going to maybe get rid of commercials, maybe. I think that's a problem for them. The digital stuff that they do, the commercials that they're selling, they're competing with other organizations that are just coming up and having trouble making it. Um, you know, the CBC had a, many years ago had a chance when they wanted to, and this is way back, CBC 1, CBC 2, the way BBC was able to split itself so that it could target not just one giant audience. When that happened, that's a long, long time ago, that kind of put the nail in it for them. And they've been, I think, struggling with that ever since. Uh, so I'm not entirely answering the question. As long as there's some money put aside for uh, automotive humorists in the big mo- money slush fund that's going, I'll probably be pretty happy. Okay. Well, there you go. Everybody has a self-serving interest. And I guess, uh, you know, the story that's predominated the news cycle in the last several days is this thing about the coronavirus out of China. And uh, when we got an update most recently from the World Health Organization uh, a couple of hours ago that this is now a global health emergency, uh, it leads one to wonder if we're being too ca- uh, too cavalier and casual about it, or uh, perhaps 
even going the other way, uh, overly cautious, maybe lapsing into panic. There have been uh, accusations of racism and xenophobia being visited upon the Chinese community by Councillor Cressy, who was on yesterday with us, the mayor as well. So, David Wills, how do you assess it at this point in time? Well, I, th- I think it was smart of the mayor and uh, and the councillor to, to address this early uh, before letting it fester and just kind of remind people that, uh, you know, that those things are unacceptable and also, you know, are panic driven with no basis. Uh, I think that people are pretty calm about this. I think uh, the public health officials are doing a good job regularly keeping us up to date and sharing information, reminding us of things to do, wash your hands, sing happy birthday, that's the length of time, all but that why stuff. why bring up the racist and xenophobic angle if there's no obvious manifestation of it? Well, I think there were some examples, which is they wanted to get... They wanted well, the mayor to, cited one. Yeah, but... So you're always going to get some idiot troll on whatever social media platform. But talk about it early instead of then having get into a debate about it. I, you know, I, I think that that was the right thing to do. How about you, Sherman? I don't agree. I, I think that uh, by shining a spotlight on it, they made it a thing when it wasn't a thing. Uh, I don't think that I've talked to anybody who's even remotely suggested that because you have Chinese facial characteristics and are dubbed a Chinese-Canadian that you have anything to do with what's come out of Wuhan or that uh, you are going to cause anybody to contract uh, a disease that uh, has come out of nowhere and happens to have come out of nowhere from China. It's not going to stop me going down and getting my uh, once a month fix of uh, of dim sum over at Rollsan or one of the other places on Spadina, mm. and, uh, and and I don't think by doing so that I have the remotest chance of catching anything. And if, if there was a disease that came out of Israel, I wouldn't stop eating deli up in Thornhill either. It's it's silly. All right. Well, yeah, that was the uh, inference, I guess, from Councillor Cressy because he's uh, York Spadina or whatever for York Spadina, and uh, that's. Word 10, which is Chinatown, Mm -hmm. and he's saying a lot of the uh, merchants there and the restaurateurs are already starting to feel, you know, a bit of a chill that some people are avoiding there. Is that just a natural impulse, Andrew? I mean, that people might, you know, wondering if uh, maybe somebody's just come back from Wuhan. They don't know who's next door at the table coughing. I mean, so it's just a natural, or is that racist? Well, I think people are are changing their behaviors, not just say, in going to Chinatown, but just malls are probably not as busy. More people are driving if they, can, if they can instead of taking public transit. There's a kind of fear that sets in because of the unknown. I think the advantage we have in Canada is that there is a faith uh, in our health system and the people who are representing it uh, that uh, when you're talking, like I was talking to a friend uh, from China saying that she was saying, well, whatever the government's saying is way worse. So there's no trust. I mean, the, the whole idea that the, the virus was identified around December 1st by uh, frontline medical people in Wuhan and that nothing was really done until December 31st. So I think it stems from a bit of ignorance. So if, I don't think people are necessarily, I'm not going to go to Chinatown. They're probably just not going out, period, like they might have. Well, it gets interesting, too, because you've heard uh, Air Canada stop flights into Beijing and Shanghai, 33 every week. Those are now curtailed until the end of February. Ditto for British Airways. A number of Asian-based airlines likewise not traveling there. And then you've got the Aussies who've decided to quarantine anybody coming back from China on Christmas Island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. David Wills, I mean, is that like uh, seeds of uh, a vision of a leper colony? Or is that just prudent public policy? Well, I think Christmas Island is notorious, uh, so it's a bad choice, right? It's like, you know, they've been locking up uh, refugees in there and uh, in horrible conditions where uh, you know people are you know 
they're committing suicide, having all sorts of mental health issues because of the the quality of the facility, which in quality is the wrong word, lack of quality. Uh, you know, I think that treating people that way is inhumane. You don't have to isolate them on an island. You can isolate them in a room. You know, it's a it's right, an but you overreach. believe in isolation, though. You think that's a good public practice? Well, I I, I think it should it could be part of the uh, of the situation <laughs> that if you're repatriating people back. You know, you're going to do a medical assessment on them before they leave, monitor them while they're there when they get back. And that, yes, maybe you do uh, because, you know, the government is making this investment. Ask them to stay home for a couple of weeks. Just they're going to be happy to be home. They're going to, you know, it's they're in their environment. Uh, so, so asking them to be home, I mean, it's similar to what Canada is affected. Uh, it's the honor system. You can uh, self-impose this exile, if you will, uh, and now... Do we mandate that somebody check on you, Peter Sherman? I mean, because we've often, uh, like right off the hop, it was a case of self-report at the airport, which I thought was rather lax and maybe not taking this as seriously as might be taken. And it's proven to be the case. Uh, how about that, though? Would you uh, put them in a, uh, a government-mandated quarantine? I might very well. Uh, quarantine is not a brand new idea. It's been around for a very long time. I, I would tend to agree from what I know of Christmas Island with what David has had to say. Uh, however, there are other ways to do it. You have to remember that Australia is rooted in a history where it itself was a penal colony when, when uh, people started to colonize it other than the aboriginals. So uh, what we've got here is a situation where um, people start to lose trust in something where nobody knows how, how it started, how to fix it. Uh, how long it's going to take to get a vaccine going, how much it's going to spread, whether the death rates are going to climb. All those things are are open book. So do we want a quarantine um, of some sort? Probably. Do we have the facilities to do it and give people proper bedding and proper medical care? Yes, I think we, we could. Um, God knows we've handled plenty of uh, asylum seekers and found the ability to do that. So let, let's, let's move back one step and, and ask this question. I've been asking it on Twitter and getting a fair amount of response the last week. Why in the hell is our government not doing more to protect us? As far as I'm concerned, if you're coming from China uh, or you're coming from somewhere but uh, can be traced back to originating in China, uh, should there be a, a more stringent situation than the honor system when you hit YYZ or, uh, or Vancouver or Montreal or any other place that accommodates those kinds of flights? And I say yes, and I say it should be um, the FIVIR machines or similar uh, thermal imaging machines, uh, and it should not be honor system, and there should be a, a fillet. For God's sakes, for as many years as I've been flying, the little piece of paper they give you on the airplane says, have you visited a farmer agriculture? facility while outside of Canada in the last 15 days. The least we could do is get people to sign something and say, uh, I have been exposed or I might have been exposed. How about that box that asks if you're bringing a weapon back into the country? You tick that one, yes or no? Well, it's, it's the same <laughs> thing, isn't it? Yeah, okay. Effectively, it is. I mean, uh, it can kill you. Hey, by the way, it's kind of a, an irony not lost on some of us that uh, the coronavirus is maybe keeping more kids out of school than the teachers' unions. Your buddy Harvey Bishop was on earlier today, David Wills, and uh, he was suggesting that, you know, obviously this thing is a logjam. Nobody's making any movement. Uh, but should the government blink first in breaking the logjam? I posited to him, for example, uh, if they were to waive this uh, two mandatory e-courses by 2022, you know, they'd implemented in 2022, he said, well, that's a good start. And so, you know, we went through, you know, even changing the, the metrics on how many teachers, you know, per capita, uh, class size, in other words. And uh, finally, you know, he was all in agreement. Yeah, that would be good. That would be good to just move the process. Then back off on the 2%, go to 1%, kind of 
changed his tone at that point. Do you think that the the union is really uh, ready to negotiate in good faith and uh, maybe even concede some points? I, I think the union is ready to negotiate in good faith. I think what we're seeing is, you know, if you if you look at the whole uh, the, the whole picture, you know, the elementary school teachers, uh, you know, I think six weeks ago. Uh, put forward some proposals as part of the... you got to remember the contract is not one page, right? It's a big, thick thing that deals with a whole bunch of issues. And they tried to, you know, prime the pump a little bit and said, here's some proposals on special education and educational supports. Why don't we negotiate and talk on this? And the government didn't even respond. They didn't acknowledge that they received it, and they didn't respond. And what the mediator is doing is talking to both sides continually, seeing if there's movement, like a willingness... And when they see a willingness, they say, okay, let's bring you back together. And if there's no willingness, they don't do it. So both sides are in. I listened to your interview, and I think that what he did say was, yeah, if they're willing to be open on that and have a discussion, they can get talking. And that's how these things happen is they get talking, and then you can talk about all of the issues. But the government has been very, very uh, adamant. They're, they're doing two things, that they're trying to make it, uh, you know, the greedy, greedy, greedy is a message. And all they're asking for, like as a starting point, is cost of living, and they're getting greedy back in their face. Yeah, but uh, they're also saying cuts, cuts, cuts. Well, because, yes, and that's the other side, is that it's it does, you know, e-learning cuts teachers, bigger class sizes cuts teachers. What, what, so those what, are cuts. Yeah, but they don't want to even concede anything. It's all, we just want to revert back to the status quo prior to the Ford government coming into play. The, but what he did say is if they were going to say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll take this off the table, and these, they will start talking. And that's how these things are going to happen. But what's happening instead is that they're trying to, they're spending a lot of their energy trying to divide the, the, the teachers. They're saying, we like teachers, we don't like your union, and we don't like your union heads. It's like they're forgetting that those people are democratically elected by the teachers, and it's the teachers who are walking out each week, and they overwhelmingly voted to do so, and there's no break in that. So that's not working. I think that... that uh, the government does have to come up with something to get them back talking. And until they get talking, nothing's going to happen. And, you know, Peter's going to come in and say that he's he's going to predict that, that it's going to be legislated back, and he's probably right. Is that what you're going to say, Peter? Well, they probably are going to have to do that. And I think the <laughs> thing that, that David is missing, well, I, I don't think you're missing it, David, but you haven't brought it up. Well, the government has to concede some things. Well, it seems to me that over the weeks leading up to this, months leading up to this, the government conceded on class size. The government conceded on uh, on several other things. Um for example, the the number of courses that were going to have to be uh, delivered online or taken but online. Peter, by to say it's a concession, I'm going to cut off your arm. I'm only going to cut it off at the elbow now. Is not a concession. But that's what concessions wind up being. It's the same as saying, yeah, as long uh, as it's not your we, as long as it's not your arm, I guess. Well, in our last ex- exciting episode last week, <laughs> we ended off with me sticking in the word greedy as we were signing off. I, I still think that, and I think that because after all of what Harvey Bischoff had to say to John and uh, and all of the things that might get them talking. When we get down to, are you going to take any less than 2%, the answer is no. And the government is saying... cost of living to maintain your lifestyle greed? That's not... There's no cost of living to maintain your lifestyle situation. There's a situation where all of us... All of us... I'm sorry, but all of us in the province of Ontario, and this is why the big we, not all of us maybe individually, but the big we, elected a government like that of Doug Ford was to see us put a handle on some of the expenses we've got. When when we see what middle class is defined as in Canada as $96,000 and teachers like the ones he represents making anywhere between, well, as much as $100,000 and 
and they're they're being told take one for the team, one being one percent for the team for this year uh, or for three years, whatever the case may be, on a per annum basis. I think that's okay. The rest of us don't get to make that choice. The rest of us are not in unions that are prepared to withdraw service from our kids. Andrew, how do you perceive it? I mean, uh, the other thing is when you got these polls, somebody cited an ECOS poll yesterday saying 60% of respondents favored the teacher's position. The teachers know the parents or the parents know the teachers. I mean, so it becomes personal. It's a personalized thing. It's intimate. Uh, You can almost understand that. But what do you sense is the uh, prevailing mindset out there that the government should dig in its heels, you know, to the point that Peter just made? Uh, Maybe a lot of folks ain't doing as well as the teachers, all things, you know, uh, into the consideration. And maybe they're not telling the pollsters the truth. I mean, what is your sense here to the ground? Well, you're right. So parents know their teachers, and if they like them, they're gonna uh, they're gonna be with them for a while. But I think that there's also an unease among parents whose kids are in public school, and they don't know who to blame. And I think they're they want to have their kids in school getting taught. They don't want to be sort of a a trial balloon uh, for a fight between the union and the government. They just want everyone back in the classroom and all the class sizes fixed. Uh, but the problem is that that's not seems to be very tenable anymore. So, I mean, my prediction is a full strike in the fall, eventually. A full, that, a a full, full strike? strike in the fall would be my prediction. Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, does anybody see that prospect? If they no, settle, I mean, it can't go that long. No, and if they actually settle this thing sooner rather than later, or even later, I mean, then you've got a three-year contract again. And so that would obviate any need for a strike. While I've got a moment or two, I wanted to end on a couple of considerations from the West Coast where the Supreme Court of Canada ruled, and John Horgan, who's a premier out there, the NDP premier, uh, really took it on the chin because this Trans Mountain Pipeline, they said, is kosher, it's legal to do. Horgan's had to stand down now as much as he fought it all the way to the Supreme Court. He says, I'll respect the court's decision. He didn't respect the lower court's decision, but it's all political. Uh, Is this a real setback for... uh, the echo warriors, if you will, David Wills? Uh, you know, in, in some ways it is, but I think, it, you know, I hope we're going to have this conversation when uh, the provinces that are fighting the carbon cha- tax who lost at the lower court also lose at the Supreme Court. So I think fair has to be fair. He did fight it. He lost. He appealed. He lost. Uh, but the thing with the approvals that still have to go through and the, you know, the Harper government got it wrong, the Trudeau government got it wrong. They got to follow their own process. Both times it's been rejected because they didn't follow their own rules. And I think that's going to be the next step uh, is that they're like once they, they're going to have to follow those, uh, the right to the obligation to consult properly. And then if they want to get that pipeline built, they have to do that work. You're almost suggesting that the government of the day can slyly insert something in legislation that even they couldn't meet the test. Well, you know, the, both the both the governments adjusted the rules, so and then they and then they took a shortcut. So I think that's that was the, what the court said is that you both cut both times as you took a shortcut. Uh, you know, to answer your question, I think yes, it was a loss for the for the eco warriors out there. I think they were hoping that they got that, but they were they were clearly told no. A great day for Canada, Sherman. Too bad, so sad for the eco-warriors. We need the pipeline. We've always needed the pipeline since it's been under discussion. And Kinder Morgan would have probably finished it by now had it gone that way. I think it's great that Horgan has been defeated, but I do concede, uh, per David's uh, thesis, that when the Supreme Court rules against, for example, Ontario on the carbon tax, we're going to have to eat that too. All right. Well, guys, uh, we're going to leave it at that note. Everybody's going to have to eat it. We're done for the day. Another great one for Talk Radio. Uh, I appreciate you all coming in. Andrew Clark, David Wills, Peter Sherman.
Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 